The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national breaking and headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress and other high-profile public figures. Today, after the headlines, I interview the very refreshing and radically different, in a good way, Burbank Council member Konstantin Anthony. Here are some headlines from this morning and uh, through the last few days. Ireland temporarily suspended the use of the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine on Sunday following a report from Norway of patients developing blood clots post-inoculation. The Norwegian Medicines Agency on Saturday said that there were four new cases of serious blood clotting in adults after taking the vaccine. Ireland is the latest in a string of European countries who have decided to partially or fully suspend the rollout of the AstraZeneca vaccine following reports of patients developing blood clots after inoculations. Health authorities in Austria were the first to sound the alarm on the potential dangers of the vaccine, suspending on Tuesday one batch of doses. Federal COVID-19 guidelines will be much more liberal by the 4th of July if U.S. cases drop as more Americans are vaccinated, Dr. Anthony Fauci said Sunday. Asked whether people will return to the degree of normal without masks and distancing by the summer holidays, Fauci, President Joe Biden's chief medical advisor, replied, yes, there will be a greater degree of confidence in that. The comments from Fauci come nearly a week after CDC released a new guideline saying people will fully vaccinated against COVID-19 can safely visit with other vaccinated people and small groups of unvaccinated people in some circumstances. Dr. Fauci spoke with CNN's Jake Tapper on Sunday about the latest developments. So President Biden has promised to have enough vaccine supply produced for every adult in America by the end of May. Of course, there's a big difference between having enough supply and getting those shots into arms. When do you think it's going to happen that everybody who wants a shot has gotten a shot? Well, I hope that's just going to be a couple of months after that. I mean, hopefully by the time that we get into the summer and and towards the end of the summer, logistically, let me tell you what's going on, why I feel optimistic about that. What the president has announced and will happening is the opening up of community vaccine centers, up to 500 of them, and over 900 of the community health centers from HRSA to get people vaccinated in those centers. Number two, to give the pharmacies a lot more of leeway in being able to administer vaccines, particularly in areas of the country that are poorly serving uh, in the sense where minorities are, are demographically represented to a high degree. Getting mobile units out to get to poorly accessible areas and get a lot more people who can do vaccination. That means the military, that means retired physicians, nurses, and healthcare providers. Mm-hmm. So you're absolutely right. There are two issues. Getting enough doses, which we will have with the new contracts with the pharmaceutical companies, but once you get those doses, to get it into people's arms. And that's the reason why when the president said by the 4th of July, we'll we'll believe strongly that if we do all these things, we'll reach a certain degree of normality by then, and then well into the summer, we'll get even better and better towards normal. So let me ask you about that, because Biden said there's a good chance Americans will be able to gather in backyards and neighborhoods for cookouts on the 4th. The CDC already has guidelines for gathering outside with masks and distancing. So can you explain the difference? Does that mean people will be able to return to a sense of normalcy without masks, without distancing on the 4th of July? Well, yes, first of all, to be a greater degree of confidence. When you have a situation where you have 70,000 infections per day, I mean, that is a feeling that you don't feel very secure about mingling, about having people around feeling comfortable about it. If by the time we get to the 4th of July, with the rollout of the vaccines, we get the level of infection so low, I'm not going to be able to tell you exactly what the specific guidelines of the CDC are, but I can tell you for sure they will be much more liberal than they are right now about what you can do. 
Los Angeles County's rate of new cases and hospitalizations continued their decline on Saturday with 793 reported new cases of COVID-19 and 42 additional deaths, bringing the totals to 1,209,632 cases and 22,446 deaths since the pandemic began. On Friday, officials confirmed LA County's move to the red tier when the state met the threshold of administering 2 million doses of COVID-19 vaccine in low-income communities across California that have been particularly hard hit by the pandemic. Beginning at 12.01 a.m. today, restaurants welcome customers indoors and movie theaters and fitness centers will be able to reopen, all at limited capacity. Under red tier guidelines announced by the Los Angeles County Thursday, indoor dining can resume at 25% of capacity. The county will require restaurants to have eight feet of distance between all tables, which will be restricted to a maximum of six people from the same household. The rules also call for ventilation to be increased to the maximum extent possible. California Governor Gavin Newsom sought to rally a state worn down after a year of coronavirus lockdowns, uh, record wildfires, and unfathomable sickness and death, urging the nearly 40 million residents to dream of brighter days ahead while acknowledging his own mistakes that have put the political future on the line. California governors normally make these annual speeches before a joint session of legislature in Sacramento and are interrupted frequently by cheers and applause from the members of their party. But this year, with the coronavirus receding, but still dangerous, Newsom delivered the speech from an empty Dodger Stadium. And I'm speaking to you uh, from Dodger Stadium transformed from the home of last year's World Series champions into the centerpiece of America's mass vaccination campaign. Instead of fans in the stands, we see nurses in PPE saving lives one injection at a time. All because a year ago, a once in a century pandemic arrived on our shores. COVID was no one's fault, but it quickly became everyone's burden. 54,300 and 95 Californians we now mourn with broken hearts. That's almost the exact same number of empty seats behind me, marking a, a silent tribute to loved ones who live forever in our memories. We're bent but not broken, bloodied but unbowed, resolved to make brighter days ahead and not to let the pain of last year deter us from the hopefulness of tomorrow. This is a fight for California's future. Since this pandemic started, uncertainty, well, it's been probably the only thing that we can be certain of. But now we're providing a little bit more certainty, certainty that we're safely vaccinating Californians as quickly as possible, certainty that we're safely reopening our economy, and certainty that we're safely getting our kids back into the classroom. Because California, we're not gonna come crawling back. We will roar back. Let's get blunt. Today's Let's Get Blunt has been in the making for years because every time I read something about the British royal family or some sort of a scandal happens uh, and I read British press reporting it and the, the palace's response and all of that, it's just so engineered and so disingenuous. And of course, it happened again with uh, Oprah's recent interview with Harry and Meghan and all the post articles by um, British media. And so I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's, who's English, and he was sort of very defensive in a way, wanted to defend the queen and all of that, which sort of brought up other things such as how could anyone watch the interview and not see how a truly genuine and transparent uh, Harry and Meghan were and their experience. So first I want to um, read you the, a very brief press release that the royal family put out. Apparently it was written by the Queen. Uh, it was uh, issued by the, by the Buckingham Palace that I just find very annoying, actually. And I think it's counterproductive to what they're trying to do, which is damage control. The 
press release says, the whole family is saddened to learn the full extent of how challenging the last few years have been for Harry and Meghan. The issues raised, particularly that of race, are concerning. While some recollections may vary, they're taken very seriously and will be addressed by the family privately. So what would I find <laughs> bothersome with that? Well, the first sentence doesn't really say anything. It's kind of rhetoric and doesn't take any responsibility, saying that the whole family is saddened to learn the full extent of how challenging the last few years have been for Harry and Meghan actually suggests they're tone deaf because they said on Oprah that they had been communicating how challenging things were for them uh, with members of the family, but apparently they weren't listening. So, and then the, the two next sentences, I should say, uh, saying, the issues raised, particularly that of race, are concerning. Again, they're not acknowledging anything or taking any responsibility. But it's the last sentence that really bothers me. It starts with, while some recollections may vary, they are taken very seriously and will be addressed by the family privately. Let's uh, analyze the second part of that. They are taken very seriously and will be addressed by the family privately. Okay, then why are you issuing a press release about it if you are going to address it privately? So you are trying to do damage control. This is you know, typical PR for the palace. The first part of that sentence is, is the worst part, which is, while some recollections may vary, in a very sort of diplomatic uh, but yet clever way, they're trying to raise suspicion that, um, for some reason, Harry and Meghan are not telling the truth, or they are sort of their perception is warped, or something like that, which is, again, counterproductive to what the palace at least is pretending to be doing. So that's that. And when I was talking to uh, my friend, and he was sort of trying to paint the queen and the royal family as these like beacon of public service and, you know, just like humanitarians, which made me laugh. In fact, he, he wanted to say that the, the queen was just like one of the top humanitarians of the last 70 years. And I said, actually, the queen just does public relations. Mother Teresa did public service, totally different. And, and actually, Princess Diana did too. So I, I was telling him about other royal family, members of the royal family who had come forward and talked about how terrible things were for them. And so I'm going to read you a couple of quotes. The first one is from uh, uh, Duchess Sarah Ferguson, who ironically on Oprah in 1996 said, and I quote, it was dreadful, they tried to put the little redhead in a cage, uh, talking about her time uh, in the royal family. The next one is from Princess Diana, who told journalist Martin Bashir in 1995 about sort of her wedding day. She said, the day I walked down the aisle at St. Paul's Cathedral, I felt that my personality was taken away from me and I was taken over by the royal machine. That was uh, Princess Diana. So, you know, do we, do we not believe anyone? So, and also, I sort of started doing some research and found this organization called uh, Republic. Uh, and what they're trying to do, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's in England. Organization is trying to, um, they want to see the monarchy abolished and the queen replaced uh, with an elected democratic head of state. In place of the queen, they want uh, someone chosen by the people, not running the government, by representing the nation independently of their politicians. Now, the royal family is uh, always insistent that they don't, <laughs> they don't do politics, they don't get involved, they don't even have an opinion about it, they don't vote, all of that stuff which some of it is true, just the sort of the surface stuff, but they indeed are very much in politics and they do influence. Just recently it was revealed that in the 70s, uh, Queen Elizabeth oversaw legislature that uh, made it possible for her to hide all of her assets so that no one knows what her net worth is. <laughs> of course, again, talking to my, my, uh, my dear English friend, he said, you know, the queen is very private. 
well, you can call that private. We call that a lack of transparency. You know, the, the Brits are paying the Queen, I think, something like 30 million pounds a year on top of her immense wealth to sort of carry out her life, if you will. So they have the right to know. So that's lack of transparency. Um, so I want to read you what this organization, Republic, uh, is trying to do. So they say, you know, why do we want a republic? Name of their, you know, organization. It's simple. Hereditary public office goes against every democratic principle. And because we can't hold the queen and her family to account at the ballot box, there's nothing to stop them from abusing their privilege, misusing their influence, or simply wasting our money. Meanwhile, the monarchy gives vast arbitrary power to the government shutting voters out from major decisions affecting the national interest. The queen only ever acts in the interests of the government of the day and does not represent ordinary voters. The monarchy is a broken institution. A head of state that's chosen by us could really represent our hopes and aspirations and help us keep politicians in check. That's uh, from Republic, the organization in Britain, that is trying to do away with the monarchy. So, yeah, let's get blunt about this and, and stop sort of believing the spin from Buckingham Palace and, and believe, the, believe the people who were victimized. Fergie went through it, Diana went through it, and now Harry and Meghan. Let's get blunt. The Blunt Post with Vic. This past November, Constantine Anthony was elected to Burbank City Council. Councilmember Anthony is a Democrat, a father, and an Uber driver who fought for driver wages as a founding member of Mobile Workers Alliance. He has a history of progressive advocacy for unhoused people, renters, disability rights, and working people. Councilmember Anthony described his platform as unapologetically bold and far-reaching, from homelessness to housing justice to community policing. His priorities include addressing what he sees as Burbank's biggest challenges, the housing crisis and homelessness, vanishing small businesses, unfair wages, traffic and speeding, and outdated environmental policy. He also seeks to protect mom-and-pop businesses, raise working-class wages, and return Burbank to its roots as a union town. Councilmember Anthony, thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. Uh, I appreciate uh, all the, the guests that you've had on previously and the work that you've been doing um, with this uh, show. So th thanks for having me. Much appreciated. It's my pleasure. I, I grew up in Burbank, so uh, Burbank's always going to be a special city uh, for me. And you, I, I want to hear uh, everything from you. I'm not as in tune with what's happening in Burbank. So my first question would be a general one from your vantage point and perspective. Uh, how is Burbank as we stand today, since things change constantly in this sort of post-COVID or not so post-COVID uh, America? Yeah, uh, Burbank is, it's a, you know, it's, it's a funny place. It's a real small town, but it has like this big city um, amenities, like it's so close to LA and has all of this, you know, city lights and, and all of the high end stuff, but everyone there really treats it like a real small town. And you say things change, but um, you know, you, well, you know, Burbank, it's your hometown. It doesn't yeah. really change. It still has like this throwback to the mid 20th century of like small town values and, you know, real quiet place to raise your kids and uh, it's it's a very interesting place to put that in the middle of you know a huge metropolis like Los Angeles County and 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 all the things around it. Um, but we are we are handling uh, this pandemic, I think, uh, as well as can be expected. We doing the vaccine rollout. You know, we've got uh, a mask ordinance. We're we're helping uh, small businesses uh, file their paperwork to get their their loans and their tax credits and all that stuff. And um, we just uh, authorized uh, rental insurance. We got some money from the federal government 
to help with rental assistance for people who are um, behind on their rent. And so we're trying to do everything we can. Um, obviously, though, you know, we can always do more. And and one of the big concerns of mine is what is the landscape going to look like after the pandemic? Once we start to open up jobs, once um, the eviction moratorium ends, you know, right now, if you can't pay your rent, you can't get kicked out. What happens uh, when that gets lifted and how do we pay back rent and pay back our mortgages and all the debt that we've incurred. So that's going to be a longer conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to ask you, uh, you know, what are the the major or most impactful things uh, that this pandemic has done to Burbank? But what you brought up is is one that sort of uh, applies to everyone in every city in Burbank, no exception, which is housing. You know, before COVID, we had this you know, very challenging um, housing crisis here in Southern California. California houses about 50% of the nation's uh, homeless uh, community. And a lot of times we sort of just want to shuffle them around and pretend that it's it's not something that so many of us could end up very quickly. When you think about 50% of Americans are three pe- paychecks away from being homeless, uh, yeah. And then we have COVID-19, which has exasperated this whole situation. And you have been an advocate for uh, housing justice as well as affordable housing. Are you hopeful? I mean, I am. I think with my election and the election of a lot of other people who were pushing for housing justice, um, you know, Nithya Raman won her seat right next door in Toluca Lake and Council District 4 in Los Angeles. Uh, Holly Mitchell won a seat to the uh, supervisors uh, board. I mean, there's a lot of people who were uh, strong and vocal advocates for housing justice. And the electorate is really taking notice of that. The residents of Burbank, much like the rest of L.A. County, want to see something done to you know, end this homeless crisis, this housing crisis, this lack of affordable housing stock um, taken care of. And, you know, me personally, I've been homeless before. I've been homeless a couple of times. I don't come from a privileged background. I have a disability and it's tough, you know, financially for me to get through life. And so I know exactly what everybody else is struggling with. And how do we as a city, as a county, as a state, take the steps necessary to lift people out of poverty, to get people into job training or drug rehabilitation or or mental health treatment centers? What are the steps we can take to get people back on their feet and then thrive, right? So we don't want people slipping back into homelessness. So that takes a longer uh, strategy of building affordable housing for the long term building social and public housing for people who absolutely need it. And the idea that this conversation is happening in many households uh, across the county and across the state does make me very hopeful. People are talking about it. You know, go online, go go on the Internet, uh, talk to your neighbors. Um, It's a big topic of conversation. People are just they're starting to ask the right questions and the proposals and policies are coming to fruition. They're, They're coming to the forefront. Well, that's good to hear. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with the very progressive Burbank Council member, Constantine Anthony. Driving through Burbank, which I do often, I don't see a lot of buildings going up. Is that just because the direction I'm going? Or has there been any sort of a, a policy shift to allow developers to develop more housing, especially um, you know mid and low income housing. Um, it might be just from where you're driving through. Um, there are a number of big development projects off the beaten path. So one of the things that the city of Burbank has done in the last few years is really take a look at underdeveloped parts of the city. You know, places like near the airport and uh, downtown and um, like there's a there was a big empty lot where we used to have the circus every year. But then it would sit vacant for 11 months 
And those are the kind of places where uh, the city has decided, okay, if if we're going to build housing, let's take advantage of these vacant lots rather than having to tear down structures or impose uh, new buildings on you know existing structures and existing neighborhoods. Let's let's develop the places that just haven't been developed before. And I think that was a great strategy because you can really start to not just build buildings but design neighborhoods like that's a key component right. of of how you you know manage a city you know if you want uh, I can give you a tour when uh, the uh, the pandemic is over we can drive oh. around and take a look at all the new the new spots <laughs> that would be that would be great it's been a while since I've really you know I I go to Burbank I drive through Burbank but it's been a while since I've been like really through it and seen some of the areas that I haven't been to in a in a long time Especially. And, you know, one of the things you're probably missing while you're driving around is that people are putting on additions to their homes and uh, ADUs, you know, granny flats in the back. Right. So you wouldn't see that from the front yard. Sure. But what we're really trying to push for in Burbank and, and across the state, the state has really helped out with this, is if you have a single family home, um, you know, and you have a, a – a child, a, a grown, you know, a grown child who's moving back from college, or you have a parent who just can't afford or isn't able to live on their own anymore. Instead of having to find them a new apartment or somewhere to live, having that ability to add an addition to your house and have them move in with you, like that, really opens up housing stock for everybody else. So that one little unit that you're building. Uh, you know, takes a person out of an apartment in some, somewhere else in the city, and that really creates that affordable housing yeah. stock uh, uh, throughout the city rather than trying to build, you know, giant towers here and there with a bunch of units. Uh, so I, I think that's that's another really good uh, component of how we help the middle class and how we help yeah. the working class <clears throat> rise up. I've never actually heard anyone bring that up. It's such a good point, and it makes total sense to do that. So I'm really glad that Burbank's doing that. Um, it's very interesting. I want to talk about your position. Uh, I think you and I, uh, I don't think, I know you and I uh, agree on, uh, well, I, I go by this one slogan I once read, you know, work union, live better. <laughs> so I'm a big supporter of unions, and I think you are too. Uh, and Burbank used to be a huge union town. Mm -hmm. And during your campaign, you talked about sort of bringing some of that back. Um, how is that going or, or what are your aspirations for that? Well, you know, I'm actually a member of two unions myself, um, SEIU 2015, which is the Home Healthcare Workers Union. I I have a disability, but son and I take care of him. And so I'm he's technically my employer <laughs> yeah. and, uh, you know, I take care of him. And the other union I'm with is SAG-AFTRA. I was a, a you know, SAG union actor for many years, um, did film and television. And the work I did was protected under union contract, and it was really good pay. And so for me, when I look at the jobs that are coming to Burbank, so many of them are non-union, minimum wage, no benefit type of uh, work that it's not really the kind of job that you can have that would afford you – to be able to live in Burbank with the current housing prices. So one of the things that we're trying to do that I personally am trying to do instead of simply just building affordable housing is also increase wages for people who work here. And one of the strongest ways to do that is to increase union participation. It's so heartbreaking to me to see, you know, that the old skunk works plant where they built you know, the SR-71 uh, uh, stealth jet yeah. um, was a union plant. It was, uh, um, you know, union jobs. The The whole town worked there uh, just north of the airport here in Burbank. And when that closed over 30 years ago, it just kind of, you know, fell by the wayside and, and there weren't really any union jobs coming out of that area. And now we just hear that 700,000 square feet of that same spot is going to be taken up by Amazon. And if you know the company, Amazon workers are right. notoriously paid very low wages and worked, you know, to the bone. 
um, uh, horrible working conditions, bad treatment, uh, not very safe with regards to COVID. And so how do we as a city look at that situation and say, you know, enough is enough. We need to change the way we do business um, here in Burbank. Um, so I, I am, you know, when I was running, I was very excited to be endorsed by, you know, a ton of unions uh, locally and, um, you know, the AFL-CIO of L.A. County um, as well, not including the, the Burbank Employees Union uh, the city employees union and the Burbank teachers association. Right. So for me, when I look at jobs, when I look at how we invite companies and, and, and the kinds of uh, corporations that we are asking to knock on our door, are we doing the outreach to the companies that pay their workers well, that treat their workers well, that have you know high wage jobs and, and good benefits. So that's really going to be my focus uh, over the remainder of my four years of, um, that kind of economic development for uh, the working class people of Burbank. That's a good point. And forgive my ignorance because I don't really know too much about this, but in terms of Amazon coming into that lot, doesn't the city um, have some power, some say as to what they're going to do and how they're going to uh, engage their employees? Um, Unfortunately, no. The land was sold to a private developer, um, uh, Lockheed that owned it, uh, you know, the city had right. a few, uh, things that they could mandate on there mostly to, uh, to do with cleanup. Cause a lot of the, um, the work that was done there for many years was pretty toxic, but the land was sold to a private developer and you know, what happens on private land is private and Amazon can do what they want, but there are ways of encouraging and enticing and incentivizing better contracts and better worker pay. What I'm hoping that we do in the short term, there's a, um, uh, a discussion happening right now about hero pay in Los Angeles and Long Beach right. and some other cities have increased wages for essential workers. I'm hoping that comes to Burbank City Council for a debate so that we can look at those types of uh, pay if that's viable, if that work for Burbank, council just, member, you know, creating but, but, options. That hero pay, you know, what they're looking at is like $5 increase at, at per hour for essential workers. Um, I, I think that would be a, a great discussion point to bring to the city and see um, see if that's uh, a viable option uh, for us in Burbank. Yeah, because our, you know, our minimum wage, whether it's state or federal, is really a joke. Um it's not a living wage. I mean, a lot of people who make above minimum wage are still not paid living wage. And, you know, when we oh, talk yeah. about Amazon, <laughs> this company that's made Jeff Bezos the wealthiest uh, man in the world and uh, a company that, uh, ironically, uh, during COVID <laughs> has had a huge growth, you know, I just don't understand why they they yeah. can't uh, i mean it's greed i do understand it it's greed and oh, it's yeah. taking care of their their stockholders and such and executives because the executives yeah. never take a pay cut it's always the mid to <laughs> low low yeah. level yeah. employees exactly um, exactly i mean we at the federal level absolutely need to pass a 15 dollar minimum wage yeah. 15 dollars is is the minimum of what it should be it should be higher uh and and you know i ran the promise that we do uh, two dollars over minimum wage uh, for our, our biggest companies here in Burbank, um, because you know it, the cost of living here is is higher. It is. It's just you know uh, housing and gas and groceries and yeah. it just costs more. Yeah, so many parts of Southern California. You're lucky if you get a if you can rent a one bedroom for you know two thousand dollars. So I don't know how someone on minimum wage can pay for that and not, I mean, you couldn't pay for the apartment, much less utilities and you know, everything else that one has to pay for. Yeah. In Burbank, on Burbank, it's about twenty two, twenty three hundred. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. So let's talk about... Um, this is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with the very progressive Burbank Council member, Constantine Anthony. Let's talk about good news and things that are coming up 
initiatives, mm-hmm. programs that you and city council are working on? Uh, yeah. Um, well, so there is a couple of um, um, big things coming down the pipe, and uh, I don't know how they're going to play out, but one of the big ones right now is something called the Burbank Green New Deal, and it um, started with a collection of uh, uh, local residents and people who were environmental activists taking a lot of the talking points that people ran on for city council, uh, myself included, and sort of packaging all of those policy ideas into a big you know, grouping of ordinances. And that's actually going to our sustainability commission on Monday for a, um, a yes or no vote to pass it on to city council. And, you know, it's a big, big collection of just, you know, common sense stuff as well as some, some really wonky type of environmental policy that honestly, some of it even goes over my head, (laughs) but it's like, you know, simple stuff from like banning gas leaf blowers, you know, the big noisy gasoline oil mix leaf blowers. Like those are ridiculous. Yeah. They're terrible to going into, you know, how we should set up our battery storage technology down the line in the future. So like big stuff and little stuff all mixed in, all under this umbrella of a environmental green new deal for Burbank. Um, and I'm very excited about it. I, I like to, I want to see this proposal uh, as a full package uh, come to city council so we can have a full debate on this. And I'm hoping, hoping, hoping uh, we could possibly get this you know, on the docket before Earth Day in April, uh, that would be that would be fun. Uh, so the timing on that, I don't know if we can make it, uh, but that would be a nice little, uh, um, you know, uh, cherry on top. Who could get it done for that? Yeah, no, absolutely. The other the other big uh, uh, movement that's happening, um, which still hasn't solidified yet, is um, a movement called Tax Amazon Burbank. So this stemmed from a movement up in Seattle where Amazon is home-based, and the Seattle City Council put a – I believe it was uh, like a salary head tax on the biggest corporations in Seattle, and I think it really only hit like two or three companies, the biggest of which was Amazon. Um, So they just called it the Amazon tax at that point. And there are people in Burbank here who are very frustrated that we weren't able – to pass a parcel tax to fund $9 million a year for our schools. We are upset that the county is taking our Measure H homeless money and not giving it back to us. They're kind of hoarding it, so to speak. And we're trying to build a homeless shelter. We're trying to build affordable housing. We want to do you know, small business relief and, and uh, rental credits and you know, helping working class people stay afloat. But all of that money, you know, it, because of the economic slowdown, the city even has less money now. Right. And yet these big companies like Amazon, that which, you know, Jeff Bezos passed a trillion dollars uh, in net worth over the summer because of COVID. These are hugely successful companies. And, you know, we've got Walmart here and we've got Kaiser Permanente, you know, two companies that just just did a killing during this pandemic. So how do we as a city create a tax structure to get these big businesses to start to pay into the local community because uh, we know they got money i mean they got oodles, oodles noodles of money and they pay yeah. very little taxes you have disney too disney one of brothers. the biggest companies in burbank yep. yeah warner brothers nbc yeah. abc and because of prop 13 you know the disney the walt disney corporation pays i believe it's somewhere around 13 dollars a square foot in property taxes Whereas a building right across the street that just got sold pays somewhere around $80 a square foot in, in property taxes. Makes no sense. So, like, you know, all these big and old corporations are really getting away with it. Um, and I think people are frustrated enough to where they want to start pushing uh, for this um, type of tax on big businesses. And, in fact, this Saturday there is the first Tax Amazon Burbank Action Conference – if you want, you can check it out on Facebook. There's going to be more mm-hmm. uh, action conferences. You can go to uh, um, Tax Amazon Burbank uh, on Facebook and uh, uh, check out what they're talking about and, and what they're doing. They're also on Twitter and Instagram. They're all over the place. Um, and they're really Amazon. just trying to get this movement off the ground. 
I like that. I really, <laughs> I'm glad to hear about that. I'll look that up. Um, you know, I want to go back to um, something you were talking about earlier, which was affordable housing and uh, mental health and all of that. And we talked about how, or you said actually, how the election results for several other um, elected officials was very positive in addressing some of these things that some of these issues that you really advocate for. And it made me think of um, L.A. Um, District Attorney George Gascon, mm-hmm. uh, yes. whom I'm a, a big I mean, I'm a big fan of his. And he's, you know, he's been working to reduce the incarceration rate, especially the ones that are unconstitutional and unfair. And I know that uh, you've been an advocate of uh, not just putting anyone in prison who has mental health problems, but actually getting them help. Mm-hmm. So that mu- that must have been a big sort of great news for you too, right? George Gascon. Oh, yes. George Gascon, I think, is doing great work, and it's a huge uphill battle for him because he is fighting, uh, fighting against ingrained institutions. I mean, there is such a structure built around the criminalization of our populace, whether it's drugs or homelessness or poverty or, or, or whatever it is that people get trapped in. And we treat them as criminals like they are murdering and raping people. And and our justice system is blind and can't see the difference. And we have to really take a look at why are we criminalizing people who are who need help uh, at the same rate of people who are, you know, violent, actual criminals that we uh, definitely need to put away. So like. There has to be a change in in the way we ad- address criminal justice. I'm, I'm hoping George gets you know everything he needs to to get the things he wants to do passed. Um, one of the biggest issues that you know uh, uh, that LA City and um, LA County are really taking a look at, and this is something I'm, we're trying to do in Burbank, is how do we reduce the criminalization of homelessness? Right. How do we stop saying? You're too poor to uh, to rent an apartment, so we, you must be a terrible person. And if you're terrible, you have to be a criminal, obviously. Or if you are such a terrible person that you got addicted to drugs or that you have a mental illness, well, then the only place in society for you is in a jail cell with the other criminals who are also terrible people. It, it is such a stigma in this country and, and – you know, we have exacerbated that problem for for decades now. I'm talking 40, 50 years, um, especially in California. My my great uncle, uh, Nick Petrus, he wrote the Lanterman Petrus short act uh, of 1968. Wow. And one of the, the promises that was made when he put in protections for the mentally ill was that there would be services. Ronald Reagan, when he was governor, promised – that, okay, if we're going to close all of these mental institutions, if we're going to close all these, you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest type places, then we need to do outpatient treatment centers. We need to increase, you know, the, the mental health treatment available in California. Well, Nick held up his end and signed the act and, and got governor to pass it. But then, of course, Reagan did not hold up his end. He never authorized the money. And then he went on and, and ditched California and ran for, for president. And so we never got the mental health uh, facilities and treatment and, and sort of uh, services that we absolutely needed for the last 50 years. And so yeah. people have just been left to, to their own squalor. And it is just – it's so sad. It's so sad yeah. to the point now where we are just trying to criminalize people. I mean there, there are people who are saying, well, you know – we should just lock them up because then they can get the treatment they 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 need yeah, right. by force. Yeah, right. And I'm like, what treatment? You, it's yeah. a for-profit, uh, you know, prison industrial complex that's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we've yeah. we've sort of contracted out, and uh, they're not yeah. they're not rehabilitating anyone. They're just locking no. them up and caging them. Wow. And that's not good for people's mental health either. So yeah. you know, I, I, I'm. I'm hopeful that there's going to be a change in how we do that. One of the bright spots that has come out of these conversations is actually uh, coming from a really odd source, and 
that's you know everyone's favorite pop star Britney Spears and uh yeah. it's it's such a such an interesting uh turn of events now she was put into a conservatorship where you know she was deemed mentally unfit mentally unstable and all of that back in oh, 2008 you know after she you know went after the guy with the umbrella and shaved her head and all that stuff right it's been 12 years yeah and she's touring the world and yet she cannot get out from under this legal stranglehold of conservatorship and it's such an important issue because there are just thousands and thousands of people up and down California who have that same problem where there's two sides of it. There is such a strong legal system in place to keep people in conservatorship, but at the same time, it's so uh, daunting to try to get somebody. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with the very progressive Burbank Council member Constantine Anthony. It raises the question that if someone would like Britney Spears, who has the the money, the finances, an army of attorneys, can't get her from under it after all this time, mm-hmm. what kind of a chance an average American has? It's it is scary. And I yeah. talk to my friends. So so you know, I spend a lot of time with people who have mental disabilities and, and, and neurological disabilities and, and illnesses. And one of their great worries, and this this comes from a lot of people, and is that in the course of them finding treatment, whether they're talking to their therapist regularly, talking to their doctor, or you know, having a, a breakdown or an episode, is that at some point simply them looking for treatment and asking for help is gonna get them sucked into a 5150 hold or a a mental health conservatorship and it's happened it is such an abusive system that people who absolutely don't need it are getting getting swept up in this program and once you're in it oh man it is impossible to get out once you have a 5150 on your record i mean you get treated common criminal if you show up to anything if any public records are pulled you're treated like you are uh, uh, deranged and violent and and shouldn't be around other people. And, you know, Britney Spears is a key example of this. She's been in this thing for almost 13 years now, and she can't get out from under it. It is just it's horrifying to watch. And that and just imagine that happening on uh, across the state. So we really, really have to have a very different conversation about what needs to go on uh, moving forward. In mm-hmm. fact, um, state state Senator uh, Ben Allen just proposed a bill that says anybody who is either a conservator, cons- conservative or proposed conservative now has the right to request their own legal counsel, and a judge has to entertain that request. Before, without this law, the judges just reject the conservatives request of legal counsel. It has to be appointed by the judge or appointed by the person who is the conservator, you know, the person who runs that yeah, person's that life. That makes no sense. That makes it no doesn't sense. make any sense. You're absolutely right. I'm hoping this law uh, goes through. Um, I believe it's um, uh, SB 742. And I'm hoping this gets in place and, and, and people can get passed. And that would change a lot of the, or at least start to help change a lot of the problems here in California. Wow. Yeah, that makes total sense. Well, Britney Spears is a good place to uh, end. However, I do want to ask you if there's anything I've missed or haven't uh, asked you or you'd like to share a call to action, perhaps. Um, you know, thank you for so much for having me on. I know most of, of your guests have been uh, federal legislators and, and, and Congress people. Um, it is so, so very important that people get to know their local elected officials, your city council member. Yeah. If you're in L.A., your neighborhood council member. If you're in Chicago, your alderman, you know, they have different names for it. Who's your county supervisor? Who's your uh, your state representatives? You know, most states have a bicameral uh, uh, house. And so you usually have two different state representatives um, for everybody in the country. Indeed. So if you're listening to this, 
find that out, look it up and, and just think to yourself, Oh, I never would have thought about that if I didn't listen to this uh, show and, 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 and uh, look it up. <laughs> now I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, first of all, it's my pleasure to have you. Although a lot of my guests are, you know, members of Congress, I do think it's important to cover regional and local politics too. I've had other council members, I've had uh, assembly members, uh, state senators, etc. And you know, my experience has been, you know, not unique, which is that you get out of it what you put into it. And so, if you're engaged with your local government, uh, you're going to be, you're going to benefit, and you're going to be aware. Um, and such, there are cities where the population is a lot more engaged. Uh, West Hollywood is a is a good example where the thirty three thousand people that live there are very much engaged and aware of what happens in City Hall. And then there are cities that are just so big, like L.A., where most people are not. So yeah. um, it's a, it is important. I know that all our listeners got a lot out of it uh, from all your wisdom and experience and information. Thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic, Councilmember Anthony. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Vic. Have, have, have a good day. You too. That was my interview with Burbank Councilmember Konstantin Anthony, who is truly a breath of fresh air in uh, not just Burbank, but in politics. Uh, thank you, Councilmember, for being on The Blunt Post with Vic this morning. Here are... Uh, three quotes from Oprah's interview with the British royals, Harry and Meghan. The first one is from Harry uh, speaking about the lack of support that he saw from his family regarding his relationship with Meghan. Uh, Harry said, One of the saddest parts was over 70 members of Parliament called out the colonial undertones of headlines written about Meghan, yet no one from my family ever said anything. That hurts. Next, uh, talking about taking uh, some time and stepping back from royal life, Harry said, This constant barrage, my biggest concern was history repeating itself. I'm talking about my mother. And what I was seeing was history repeating itself, but far more dangerous because you add a race in and you add social media in. The last one is from Megan, who said, I have been a waitress an actress, a princess, a duchess, and I've always just been Megan. Before we go, I want to thank my extremely talented producer, Ricky Herrera. And uh, of course, thank you for joining me for another episode of The Blunt Post with Vic. Please tune in next Monday at 7 a.m. for another episode. For more information, you can visit The Blunt Post with Vic.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami. Uh, both Instagram and Twitter, my handle is at Vic Jarami. That's V I C G E R A M I. The Blunt Post with Vic.